0: Well, my name is Aaron Camp, and I'm one of the elders here at Hope. i want to jump right in with some scripture reading. So thanks for standing for a second there. I'm going to begin reading in John 1, John 1, verse 19. And that's the start to our passage together today. The Word of God says, And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny... But confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked them, Then why are you baptizing, if you're neither the Christ, and you're not Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan where John was baptizing. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated, please. I've had a chance to read this passage together one time. We'll be walking through it for the remainder of our time together. But I want to start off by lifting this time up to the Lord, just acknowledging nothing changes if he doesn't do something today. So let's give this time over to him. Almighty Father, we thank you that we can gather today to hear from your word and in your kindness. You've not left us to wonder who you are or what do you want to tell us. We have to wonder who we are, for you've spoken. Your people can know what you desire for them. We can know your love. We can see the promises that you have for us from this word. And today we're talking about the word incarnate. The Lord Jesus Christ, I ask that you would help us to hear with open ears, that you would free us from distractions, that you would give us soft hearts. Most of all, I ask that this would be a community of doers of the word, that when your spirit works here, when we see Jesus exalted, we wouldn't be content just to hear about it and sit back, but that we would move when you move us. As we look at the confession of John the Baptist here in John 1, will you help it to instruct and encourage us to make Christ known to this world that we're in, to the people around us that don't know him yet? Lord, I ask that Jesus would be magnified today in this sermon. It's in his name I pray. Amen. When I mention the words testimony, questioning, Investigation, confessions, what comes to mind? What if I add that there's a thorough account of people, places, and events that took place, specific actions that are documented? That sound a little mysterious? That sound a little bit like a courtroom TV show or maybe a legal drama? Imagine some of those, some of you out there. You can audibly hear the dun-dun of Law and Order right now. Maybe others kind of get Sherlock Holmes vibes, maybe you go that direction with it. And then there are a few of you that are thinking Judge Judy and People's Court. No judgment here. Yes, I realize that's a pun. No judgment here. It's okay if that's what you thought, you can admit it. Though it may sound like I'm talking about legal jargon, courtroom drama, that's not really what's going on today that's not what we're going to focus on or talk about because we don't need fictional drama this text has real drama of its own we're going to witness an investigation at work while the priests and levites from the passage that i read to you earlier are investigating john the baptist to figure out who this guy was what he was about my hope for us today is that sure we learn a little bit about john the baptist but Maybe we learn more about two other people. Maybe we learn more about Jesus today. My hope is that you would learn a little bit about yourselves as well. As Pastor Eric pointed out at the beginning of last week's sermon, John begins his book with really abstract language. Like, it's kind of hard to process through. Um, He talks about... um, trinitarian concept these mysterious elements that don't fit easily into human experience and he uses a lot of metaphors he talks about um, this word being a light he talks about the word being a word i mean that's a metaphor in itself and appropriate to this particular season we actually even have incarnation language it's the stuff that makes up advent and christmas when we read that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But here in verse 19, things change a little bit. It's really just a pretty straightforward narrative. He he starts telling a story. It's not the first time that John has been referred to, John the Baptist, but this is kind of the lengthiest portion so far about this character named John the Baptist. And It's not weird, it's not random, because throughout the book of John, actually, if you were to walk through the entire book, you would see that we get these glimpses of testimonies. And John the Baptist's testimony of Jesus today begins to establish Jesus' early ministry, and he's establishing the trustworthiness of Jesus and his claims. As we learned last week, John the disciple is expressing the reality that God with us actually happened. So John, the beloved disciple here in John 1, is expressing that reality, and he's writing so that we may believe. So he's laying out the case by bringing in a key witness today, John the Baptist. As we walk through this account together, I hope that we learn one thing in particular, namely that following the pattern of John's confession, we can faithfully witness about Jesus. It's kind of a thesis statement or maybe a main point, so if you want to write that down, I'll say it again. Following the pattern of John's confession, we can learn to faithfully witness about Jesus. I think there are two aspects of John's confession that in particular help us witness faithfully, and that's where we'll spend the bulk of our time today. Here are the two aspects of John's confession for us to follow. We'll we'll seek to mimic this. First, We must embrace that we're not the Messiah. We're not the Savior. And secondly, we must testify about Jesus as the Messiah. And in particular, to a world who does not know him. So let's begin with that first one. We must embrace that we are not the Messiah. The story here in verse 19 begins with this group coming to figure out who John the Baptist is. He's been gathering crowds, he's getting attention and a following. So the religious leaders are trying to wrap their head around, who is this guy? What's this dude up to? Verse 19 basically says that the Jews, or as we find out later, this is specifically the Pharisees, they sent priests and Levites to ask John, who are you? I wonder if you guys know where the Pharisees are coming from and doing this. Every interaction that we see of the Pharisees throughout the Gospels with Jesus or his disciples, it paints the picture that they have some serious fear that their authority is going to be undermined. This isn't a meeting of the minds. This isn't them going as ambassadors. They're not bringing peace pipes with them. There may be a hint of curiosity about who John is, but don't be fooled. They're coming to ask an authority question has the flavor of this assessment of whether, man, do we need to squash this while it's small? Like, do, this following of John, should, should we get that now? Or maybe they're going to figure out, huh, how can we leverage this to our advantage? Let's go see what's going on with this guy. If you think this is an uncharitable reading of their circumstances or their reasons, I'd recommend doing a study on what Jesus says, to, says about these guys. Uh, no one loved the Pharisees like the Pharisees loved the Pharisees. Um, Jesus at one point calls them a pit of vipers and whitewashed tombs. So I think we can take a guess on where they were coming from here. So this hostile group is confronting John, and they ask, who are you? Realizing that I'm reading into it a little bit, I think they're probably asking, who do you think you are a little bit more than who are you? But I love John's answer. John gets to the point quickly and his response to who are you is, well, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the anointed one of God. I'll tell you who I'm not. Does it seem a little weird that he responded that way? Instead of like detailing where he came from, who his parents were, walking through the process of how he came to his calling. He didn't do any of that. He said, I'm not Jesus. Imagine if you ask somebody you know that question. Who are you? What are you all about? What, what do you do? What makes you tick? And their response is, well, I'm not the anointed one of God, the Savior of Israel, Prince of Peace. I don't go by any of those names. You can call me Aaron. <laughs> well, you have to put yourself into their shoes to understand why this isn't weird for him to respond that way. You see, the people have been experiencing this lengthy time of quiet from the prophets of God. There's been silence for so long, and they know something's wrong. They know something's off. Because these Jews understood their Old Testament, they knew that there was this time that would come where prophets would begin to speak again, and where the Messiah would appear and establish his kingdom. And they're waiting for that. They're yearning for it. They're experiencing this national oppression at the hands of these godless occupiers and they want relief. So their antennas are up for the Messiah. They're looking for special things to happen and all of a sudden you got this guy crying out in the wilderness, dressing weird and eating bugs. But people are listening and following. It's resonating with what they've heard their whole lives. In this silence, they've heard about a promise. So they're excited. False messiahs were appearing And they would continue to appear and fizzle out for many years. The people wanted salvation. But when pressed, what does John say? John said, that's not not me. In fact, in this passage, you get no hint of doubt in John's voice when he says, I'm not the Messiah. In fact, the text here emphasizes that John knows what he is not. It says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. This is a double confession. This will stand up in court. It's not just a one-off statement to the police presented to the judge. He said it twice. He explained it clearly. I'm not him. But Why? Why does John cut to the chase so clearly? What's his purpose in this very clear denial of being the Savior? The ESV expository commentary puts it very well by hearkening back to verse 7 when it says, consider what it is that John is confessing here. The testimony that he's bearing. Verse 7 stated his purpose, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. As a result, people will leave the Baptist, John the Baptist influence, to become disciples of Jesus. John The disciple, presents John the Baptist as one who feels no conflict with nor hesitation about pointing away from himself to Jesus. John presents this as exemplary behavior to be imitated. John the Baptist says very clearly, unequivocally, I am not what you're looking for. I'm not your savior. I'm not the answer. I can't fix this no challenge to your earthly authority. I have none of my own. Again, they see that John is the real deal. Stuff is happening here. He's making a huge impact. Even after he says, I'm not the Messiah, he, they ask him, are, are you these like the promised prophets or are you Elijah? Because they know their Old Testament and they know that's supposed to happen before the Lord returns. And John says, no, I'm not, I'm not even them. Not, not in the sense that you mean it, no. Hope Fellowship and friends that are visiting, you will not faithfully testify to Jesus Christ. You will not faithfully testify about the Savior if you don't understand that you're not him. No amount of good works or right answers, no amount of trying real hard, No amount of following the rules will ever be enough. You can't save anyone. You can't even save yourself. In verse 23, here in John 1, John says, I'm a voice. He doesn't say he's the word. He's not the message. He's a messenger. And this voice, John the Baptist, sought to make straight the paths of the Lord. By calling people to repentance. Not by granting forgiveness. He can't do that. Not by healing their broken hearts. He's not capable of that. For John, confessing that he was not the Christ did no damage to his understanding of his role. It clarified it. It freed him. It freed him to understand what he was called to do to realize what he wasn't called to do. That should be true of you as well. It should be freeing to realize I'm not the Savior of myself or anyone else. Give that to Jesus and do what you're called to do. Now, I don't think there's anyone here that lives with the delusion that they're God incarnate. I know a lot of you. I've never heard you say that. Uh, please don't. Please don't say that. While there are some very unstable, disturbed, or in some cases, evil people that claim to be Messiah figures, they seek to be messianic in the lives of others, that's not really our pinch point, is it? No, our, our tendency to pretend like we're the Savior usually falls in the way that we evangelize or the way that we care for people within the church. It's usually us impressing on ourselves a responsibility that's not ours. To change the heart, for instance, sharing the good news to someone, and, and it, it didn't work. It didn't work. I, I said it to him, and it didn't work. I must have failed. No, let God work. Continue to share the good news and watch him melt hearts of stone and make them fleshy again. Or maybe you're counseling someone. You're walking them through a hard time. Don't be their savior. They don't need you. They need you to care and to support them and to bring the gospel to bear on their lives. But you can't fix their situation. I think Charles Spurgeon, actually, he's a great Baptist preacher from years gone by. He gave a really helpful, it's, it's an imperfect illustration, but I think a, a helpful illustration that kind of helps me as I, as I process through evangelism and caring for others, and even just when I recognize my own need, I try to think on this illustration. He says, okay, imagine you're in a shop of some sort, maybe a wood shop or a metal shop, someplace that crafting of great quality is taking place. And on the floor of this shop, you have dust and metal shavings. You have little particles of wood and metal all over the place. And you gather it together into one big pile in the middle of a room. Looking from like a few feet away, you probably can't distinguish where those little metal shards are in that wood pile. Um, You can see there's this big mess, but distinguishing these little shavings of metal from the wood shavings would be pretty tricky to do. What Spurgeon says our task is as believers, one way that we can be voices rather than trying to be the word, is by taking the gospel, the magnet of the gospel, and tossing it in. Sharing the good news. Throwing that magnet in and watching as those metal pieces go to the magnet. When you throw that magnet in there, are you, in, are you like imbuing any magnetic power into a magnet? No. You're not the one who affects change. You've given the magnet, and you watch God work. You watch God draw sinners to himself. That doesn't absolve you of any responsibility to throw the magnet. It just shows you're not the one who really affects the change. That should give you hope, my friends. That should give you hope that when you share the good news, God changes people's hearts. John knew his identity in relation to Christ. And in following that pattern, we too can faithfully answer the question, who are you with, I'm not Jesus. I'm not the Savior. But John doesn't just leave us with the answer of who he isn't. His identity in Jesus has consequences. Recognizing you're not the Savior means you can focus on your real task. So that's what we're going to focus on next. Is the second aspect of John's confession is this we must testify about Jesus the Messiah to a world who doesn't know him. See, the Pharisees in this passage have a follow up question. They say, okay, so you're not the Messiah, you're not Elijah, you're not this prophet that we're looking for, you're any of these figures. Then what in the world are you doing? Why are you out here baptizing people? And, and what's this crowd? What's going on here? And I know this is a little bit of assertion on my part here, but I just, I just see John the Baptist in that moment, kind of with like a smirk on his face. Like, yes, thank you for the follow-up. He, he feels like he's being like, it's being teed up for him, or this is a softball. John hears the question, then why are you baptizing? And he realizes this is a chance to point them to the Messiah. On kind of almost a silly, very small level, you know what this is like. You've been in these conversations before where you're chatting with somebody, maybe you're at a family party or something for work, and they're just just talking about really boring stuff. Small talk, and yeah, of course, totally. you felt that before. And then they say something that piques your interest. Maybe something about a sports team that you like or a hobby that you're into. Anyway, just a door to the non-monotonous, boring conversation and all of a sudden it's something that you know a ton about and you're really excited to share with them. You guys know that feeling, right? Okay, at least the extroverts of you understand what this is like. I'm struggling not to talk about all the stuff I like right now, so I'm just gonna like back off of that. I'm wired for that. Maybe a certain trilogy or like a, an outdoor, you know, recreation that's in the water with little squiggly things, like, you guys all have them too. You all have things that you love, maybe sometimes too much. But I'm not here to knock you for having hobbies or anything. I'm actually using those things, those good things, those great gifts to illustrate what I think was going on with John here. You see, the door had opened to talk about Jesus. Why are you doing this? Why are you baptizing? He turned the question about himself to an opportunity to talk about the Savior. Well, what did he say? What did John say when they said, why are you doing this? What's this baptism all about? In verse 26, John says, I baptize with water. He explains his actions. I baptize with water. And I'm a voice, a voice to call people to repentance. He doesn't say I don't do anything. He doesn't ignore the question. But he redirects the question in the form of a beautiful um, distinction between Jesus and his own baptism. He says, I baptize with water, but let me tell you how Jesus baptizes. Uh, John's baptism and Jesus' baptism are actually described in another place in Matthew 3 in a really helpful way. It's, it's a little, uh, it's, it's a more full description. It says this, Matthew 3.11, I, John, baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Guys, I'll tell you what I do. I baptize with water. But there's a better baptism. There's a way better baptism. And the one who comes after me will do it. Jesus' baptism not when he's baptized, but his baptism to others, is one that's described as with the Holy Spirit and fire. His is divine in nature. No man can command the power of the Holy Spirit or direct the Holy Spirit with what to do. No mere man baptizes in judgment with fire, purifying those that he protects, destroying those he doesn't not sound like a mere man. That sounds divine. His baptism is wholly unique. It's superior, and John has no problem with po- pointing that out and highlighting it. But it doesn't end there with Jesus' actions, his baptism being superior. John actually goes the next step. It's not about correctly explaining what Jesus does. In verse 27, John's deposition... Is completed with a statement of worth about the Savior. It's a final act of worship by placing Jesus where he belongs. He takes talking about himself and transitions into putting Jesus on the pedestal in first place. And he shows it in an interesting way. You see, John the Baptist, for him, it's a matter of comparison. Guys, you see what's going on here? It's nothing. He doesn't really have language that accurately displays this deep chasm between he and the Messiah, but he's doing his best here. And what does he say? He says, listen, I'm not even worthy to untie the Christ's sandal. Is John being dramatic here? Is this like a display of false humility? or I mean, surely John is just being, you know, self-deprecating, modest. I mean, we know that John has a legitimate following. He's, he's a local star. The religious leaders have come to figure out what's going on because he's done something. Political rulers were threatened by him. And in Matthew 11, Jesus himself, later in their ministries, would say, to, say about him, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. I mean, John the Baptist is kind of a big deal. So was he just being falsely humble about it? Was he being self-deprecating? No. He was doing what he was supposed to do. He was following his calling and his purpose. He had real opportunity to act on what he truly believed. He emphatically knew that he was not the Christ, so it really shouldn't surprise us that he emphatically prioritized the word being known. He emphatically prioritized that Jesus was the hero in his story. In John 3, later, we hear from John the Baptist again. Just to kind of corroborate, to use the legal term, what's going on here now and what we see later in his ministry, I want to highlight that his game plan is revealed. He says, John the Baptist does, he, referring to Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. I don't know if it's crossed your mind yet. We've talked a lot about John the Baptist, right? Um, as I prepared this sermon, I had this kind of moment where I was like, this, this sounds awesome. To recognize that I'm not the Savior, to back out of that role and instead embrace this role of proclaiming Jesus in the life of the people around me, in this church, my neighbors, those who don't know him. That sounds awesome, but... I'm not John the Baptist. You know what I'm saying? You guys live within your own heads. I live within mine too. I've got that internal narrative. I know I'm not this guy. If you agree with me there, I hope you do. You're right. You're not. You're not John the Baptist. This is the cool thing about it. You're not called to be. You're not called to be. Your godly grandfather, or the woman who discipled you through college. You're not called to be Billy Graham. You're not called to be the Apostle Paul. You're not called to be Eric. You're not called to be Ken. You're not called to be the person sitting next to you. You're called to be you in Christ. Yes, John had a special role in God's plan, but make no mistake, even in heralding the coming Messiah, John was a sinner in need of the same Savior that you and I need. We're not here to worship John the Baptist. We're here to follow him like a faithful brother who has gone before. That's what he is. We're here to follow in him, following Jesus, like a trustworthy mentor. He's laid out a pattern for how we do that. He's laid out the pattern of recognizing we are a voice, not the word. We are not the Savior. And once we understand that identity, we can plug into who and what we are at the core of our beings as believers. We are called to make disciples, we are called to be that voice that shares about the Savior. If you feel like that's for someone else, I just really want to challenge you to say, you take a part and sharing the good news. Nothing about realizing you're not the Savior removes you from the responsibility and the joy of sharing the good news with those around you. Some of us are more gifted at it than others. Again, that doesn't remove you from the place, the identity as a disciple maker. I want to end today with two quick applications from these patterns of John's confession that we've seen this morning. And the first is about identity in relation to Jesus. John knew his identity was in Christ. That enabled him to make Jesus the hero of his story. But in a crowd this size, recognizing there's a real possibility that there are some in here that don't see Jesus as the hero of their story. In fact, Jesus may not be a part of your story yet. I I, want to warn you. The Word of God says... The person who keeps themselves or someone who does not deserve it as the hero of their story, I warn you what the Word of God says, that story doesn't end well. No saving takes place without the true Savior. John the Baptist understood his position in relation to Jesus Christ. Listen to his own words He, he who comes after me, the straps of whose sandal I am not worthy to tie. John says, I'm not worthy to be a servant to the Messiah. I'm not worthy to do the worst job that someone in that culture could be given. The job of unstrapping sandals from someone's feet was too high for him in relation to the Messiah. You know what's crazy about that? John was right. John is right that he's not worthy of that. None of us are. None of us are worthy of being servants of the Messiah of Jesus. Here's the other crazy part you don't have to be a servant. We don't deserve to be servants, and yet, when we place our trust in Jesus, He makes us part of the family. He doesn't relegate you to something that you're not worthy of as a servant, He actually raises you up to be a child in His household. He adopts us. He brings us into the family. You see, the story of the Bible, the good news that we talk about, the reason why we meet here Sunday after Sunday and in small groups together and living life together to encourage each other in the gospel is this, because Jesus, the Son of God, came to dwell among us. It's literally the point of Christmas. It should be like fresh on all of our minds that God came to be with us, Emmanuel, and that Jesus was born a man that he lived a perfect life that none of us, if we're honest with ourselves, could ever live. He was beaten, he was mocked, and he was hung on a cross where he died. Three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death forever, beginning the renewal of all things. If you believe that, if you turn to Jesus, embracing him as the Savior, Embracing him as the one who died for sins, embracing him as the one who forgives sins, embracing him as the one that brings renewal from within the heart and to the cosmos. If you believe that, you have a new life. You have a new family. You're not a servant unstrapping sandals, you have a seat at the table, at the feast. If you don't know Jesus yet, if you you can't say, my life is about putting Jesus on the pedestal, please come speak with one of us today. Jared, Eric, myself, someone that you came with, that you trust. You could pretty much stop anyone out in the hallway and say, can we talk about this? And we're going to want to talk about it. So please do. The second one is my final application. I wanna talk about the coming weeks, particularly the next two weeks. A lot of us are about to walk into stressful situations. Sometimes those are internal, sometimes they're external. Sometimes there are issues with family, coworkers, neighbors, but the potential is high that many of us here in this room are gonna walk into anxiety-ridden circumstances. Even if you don't have any interrelational inter- like, baggage or issues within the family or whatever, there's like, still the likelihood somebody won't like the gift that you got them. A little bit of a spectrum there in terms of importance. But there's a good chance your house will never be clean enough. There's a good chance that you're spending money that you don't have to deal with the awkwardness of not having gifts at a family event. There's a good chance that um, you'll feel sad at the loss of a family member. You'll remember people that are no longer there. There's a good chance that your hopes for a restful time of vacation will be interrupted. Kids, if you're still in here, there's a good chance you'll get gifts that you didn't want. Adults, maybe that too. There's a good chance that some of you will feel alone this Christmas, even though you're surrounded by people. know it sounds like I'm being a downer here, but this is where the rubber meets the road, right? This is where either, either the gospel has something to say about this, and Jesus is the savior over these things, or he's not the savior. I would argue, along with John the Baptist, that he is. While I don't have a panacea for how to dismiss these worries I certainly don't know how to avoid the experiences that many of you will have in the coming weeks. I do want to talk about a strategy. We've actually looked at it for like the past 25 minutes. Remember, going into the next few weeks, you are not the Savior. It's not your job to fix that difficult relative or to be the perfect hostess or to give the perfect gift that's already been given. It's your calling to communicate grace and to speak truth with love and to forgive because you've been forgiven. Really, the next two weeks in particular, I mean, focusing on that because of circumstances, but if we were to focus on the next two weeks, really your calling is to answer the question, who are you? Why do you do that with Jesus? to find ways to turn the conversation to Jesus. And yeah, it's awkward. It's weird. But let's pray that we embrace that. Let's pray that the shock of saying, hey, your kids are really well-behaved. Mine are burning down a curtain over there. Say like, by God's grace, I've got good kids. You don't see the bad stuff. And I'm, I fail at parenting all the time, but by God's grace, uh, yeah, yeah. He's, he's blessed us with good kids. And they go, by God's grace, that's weird. It, guys, it doesn't sound that weird to you, but think of before you were a Christian, how weird it was when people talked like that. It's weird, and it's really weird if you say that to your barista at Starbucks. They go, by God's grace, okay. <laughs> Embrace that awkwardness. You have a chance to get, about, get excited about the most exciting thing possible. I think this is really something to pray about and meditate on in the coming days. Ask yourself that question. How can I prepare my heart now to fight the temptations to make Christmas and New Year's about myself? How can I fight that? Truly, take some time to think through that. I don't know the pressures. I I gave you a list, but some of you have your own lists. Walk through them and pray through and think through and meditate on the word in ways that prepare you to show people Jesus when that pressure comes. When you're squeezed, like Stephen, when he's being martyred, he's literally about to be stoned to death. His response wasn't, help me somebody, get me out of this. His response was, Jesus is king. We know one thing, guys. We can't do this in our own strength. I can't just tell you to go and do that. I can't tell myself to go and do that we need the lord's help in this so let's close in prayer together i'm going to pray that this would be true for us this holiday season as we go into christmas that we make much of jesus recognizing that we're not the savior let's pray almighty father thank you for this example that we have from the life of john the baptist It truly is a gift to see his confession and to learn from it. But even more so, more than John the Baptist, more than our own desires to grow and change, we are grateful to Jesus for making John's story something that we can actually experience too. By his blood and his resurrection, your Holy Spirit dwells in us so we can change. You've opened our eyes to see Christ. So will you make him so glorious to us that we can't help but make life about him. That he would be the hero of our stories. That he would be the topic that we just can't wait to get to. That we can't help but share the good news about him. Father, will you help us to make much of your son Jesus over the next few weeks to those around us Help us to make sacrifices for the sake of those who don't know you and to embrace awkwardness for the sake of their souls and your glory. Help us to speak hard things lovingly, to proclaim the good news winsomely, respectfully, thoughtfully, and to forgive quickly. Lord, we just ask that we would worship joyfully. We need your help. We need the Holy Spirit to do these things because like John, we are not the Savior. I ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, amen.